Hello and welcome to another podcast edition of Taiwan Talk, ICRT's weekly interview segment, bringing you conversations from and about Taiwan. I'm Keith Manconi. Today we are continuing our once-a-month series in which we speak with Taipei Times features writer Han Cheng about his weekly history column, Taiwan in Time. Uh, just to recap exactly what he's doing here, each Sunday he finds an event in Taiwan's history books that took place during the following calendar week. So, you know, if he's writing in the second week of June, then we'll hear about something that happened in the second week of June, maybe way back in the 1920s or in the 19th century or earlier. Who knows? Uh, he finds that event. Then he serves up a bite-sized history lesson on that event in his column. Uh, very interesting work that he's been doing. Uh, here on the show, we're just basically podcastifying his work, having a little conversation about it, and uh, also talking about how these events that took place so many years ago uh, relate to current events in Taiwan today. So, for example, last month we heard about Taiwan's first female doctor. Uh, we also heard about a Taichung well that's uh, believed to have mystical properties. Uh, and uh, we heard a little bit about the last-ditch resistance uh, as Japanese forces took control of Taiwan. Those were all June events. This month, we're moving on to July, uh, and we have a whole bunch to get to. So we're going to get to it. Here's our conversation. All right, and Han Chung, uh, welcome back to the ICRT studio. Oh, thanks for having me here again. Good to have you. And uh, so we will be discussing right now your July articles for Taiwan in Time. Uh, and July being an extra long month, we have an extra long show and we'll be covering five of your articles. Five weeks, five articles. Uh, the first one is uh, quite action-packed. Uh, it comes to us from the first week of July. Uh, and this incident occurred on July 5th, 1959. Uh, your article is titled Migbusters in Action. And this article uh, details an aerial altercation between the ROC uh, and, and the PRC. Yeah, that's correct. Um, so this one, it's an incident that happened on the morning of July 5th, uh, 1959, where four uh, F-86 Sabre fighters uh, departed from the Xinzhou Air Base. And they were kind of these uh, the ROC Air Force did these kind of missions. They were just kind of reconnaissance. They flew like near the... People's Republic of China, and they kind of looked at, took reconnaissance photos, and but sometimes they would get caught by the People's Liberation Army uh, mm. fighters. They they flew Soviet MiGs, and aerial battles would ensue and ensue. And then this one kind of that day, there were like these four ROC fighters. They ran into a bunch of MiGs, and there were. Some pretty fierce fighting, a lot of like flying around, doing like scissor maneuvers and uh, kind of doing pretty daring stuff like, like flipping the entire plane around. And um, yeah, and in the end, they downed at least four MiGs before coming back. All right. So that yeah, is an exciting incident in and of itself. Uh, you kind of looked at the documentation of, I guess, what was basically a dogfight. Uh, but let's take a broader look at uh, the context in which this all happened, provide a little bit of a Taiwan history lesson right here. 
Uh, and basically, the, the bottom line of what we're looking at right here is this is an incident that took place after the end of the Chinese Civil War uh, it, during a period that we normally think of as, you know, a time of uh, relative peace. Uh, but it's important to mention that these sorts of skirmishes were occurring uh, fairly regularly uh, between 1949 all the way up into uh, 1967. So give us like a little, just a brief uh, understanding of what had been happening up in, uh, until this point. There were uh, two cross-strate incidences before then. Yeah, there were. Um, so a lot of it, it seems like um, the nationalists just kind of retreated after the end of the Civil War in 1951 to Taiwan, and then they were kind of kept separate. But there were actually quite a few incidents that were going on, like the first Taiwan Strait Crisis and the second Taiwan Strait Crisis. The second one was in, like, 1958, and that was the last major battle between the two sides that took place on uh, mostly on Jingmen mm. when... Uh, like it, it's an and when the two sides were shelling each other, right? And there were also aerial battles and Jinmen in particular, of course, uh, that famously has led to a brand of knives that comes from the, I guess, the steel from those shells all, yeah, all yeah. those years back. Right, right. Yeah. So actually, fighting kept going on, and then uh, 1958, the second crisis, that kind of marks the last major battle between the two sides. But I wanted to look at, um, but then I noticed. This battle took place in 1959, which was after mm-hmm. that. So I was kind of looking at... So actually, there was more fighting mm-hmm. after that. In fact, there were aerial battles of this sort all the way up to 1967. Mm-hmm. And after that, it just kind of tailed off. Um, mm-hmm. um, the Taiwan's international standing was getting not too great. And then China was uh, stuck in... Like the famine from the Great Leap Forward and all, uh, other disastrous policies, so um, so things kind of stopped in 1967. But it was uh, kind of surprising to see that these direct conflicts kept going on way after 1958. Mm. Right, and I think that the article that you wrote really just underscores. Uh, how violent and how intense uh, those altercations could be. Uh, And also, I mean, how uh, sophisticated uh, these uh, uh, various soldiers were. I mean, these these were guys that really knew how to fly planes. Yeah, yeah. Back then, even though there was like no more official combat, they were still, they still knew what to do. They saw the MiGs and they kind of tailed them and tried to shoot them down. Like they didn't, just run away they knew they knew how to maneuver them and kind of when they were attacked they knew what to do and like dive down change their altitude and make sharp turns and do all kinds of maneuvers to bring down the enemy and that's what they were trained to do back then and even though there wasn't that much combat going on they were still ready in case something happened and it did All right, and we move now to the second week of July, your second article for July, and an incident that occurred on July 13th, 1949. Uh, You detail this in uh, the article entitled Students, Soldiers, and Spies. Uh, And if we are talking about students, soldiers, and spies, that very likely means that we're going to be discussing the white terror era, and uh, most definitely we are. This takes us away from uh, the main island of Taiwan and to Penghu, 
uh, and an incident that occurred with a number of refugees uh, from China. So tell us a little bit about that. There were all these uh, students from Shandong that when the Shandong fell to <clears throat> the communists, they fled and then they kept fleeing until they got to like kind of the final nationalist stronghold. And when that fell, they kind of petitioned the military in Penghu if they could just all go there. And they kind of had an agreement to be able to continue their studies and also undergo like military training. Mm. So, yeah, so the government approved it. They landed. But then... Once they got there, they were the kind of all the males were male students were forcefully conscripted into the army because mm. um, because um, they were saying that Penghu military the ROC military in Penghu were really lacking a manpower, so they just saw all these young men coming and they decided to just like force them all to join the army and even confiscating their textbooks and. Most of them were promised an education and ended up in the army instead. Right, and uh, so what's what's interesting to me here is uh, these were students that were uh, very much invested in their education. They knew that they were going to uh, serve uh, and be trained as soldiers to some extent, uh, but where they really got upset was when they learned that they wouldn't be getting any education, uh, and that in fact even uh, very uh, the young children among them. Uh, were also being conscripted as soldiers. And so that's where uh, these protests start taking place, and then the backlash from ROC authorities uh, takes place. Yeah, so when they first started conscripting these students, they kind of just isolated them for a while, and then um, they had them all go to this military drilling ground, and then they started just organizing them into, like, different troops and... First, these people were like, oh, what's going on? But they had, um, they were surrounded by other soldiers and they saw people with like machine guns on the roof or sniper rifles. And so they were like, we don't know what, what's going on, but we kind of just have to go with this. And then I found a direct, um, direct account from one of the protest leaders. So he said he kind of, he kind of went with it until he saw the younger underage students being conscripted. And then he was like, oh, this is wrong. So he he got onto the podium and he kind of led the whole crowd in chanting all kinds of slogans and said, like, this is not what we came here for. This is not what we were promised. And mm. and then uh, some soldiers rushed at him and he ended up being stabbed a couple of times. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then he was locked away. And then the rest of them, a bit of controversy about what happen next there are some accounts that the military just opened fire on these children and then but all the eyewitness accounts that i looked at just said um everything kind of quieted down after the stabbing and they were too scared to do any more resistance so that's up to debate Mm -hmm. um so but but then kind of picking up on on the story as it moves forward then really uh the protagonists become these principals that themselves protested and uh, the treatment of their students, essentially. Uh, and that got these principals in a lot of trouble. Yeah, yeah. So two of the principals, so there were students from like a number of schools from Shandong that were in Penghu at that time. And mm. two of the principals saw what were going on and they went to protest to the military. They were, they were like, you can't, this is not what we agreed with. And you can't do this to our students. 
and that made the military unhappy. So they started kind of secretly arresting all these students and torturing them into mm. confessing that um, they and the principals were working for the communists and were trying to um, infiltrate the uh, ROC army. And according to a lot of accounts from the students who were arrested, uh, they because it was all made up, so there were so many conflicting stories that the military ended up just writing all the confessions for them and be like, just sign this. Mm. And that led to the arrest of the two principals. And then there were all, uh, a bunch of trials going on. And some of the students were brought to Jilong to stand trial. And in the end, the official count is the two principals along with five student leaders of the supposed communist Plotting, uh, plotting and uprising kind of thing. And, mm-hmm. Yeah, so they were executed. Mm. And that was in the news in December of that year. Mm. Now, this is, of course, relevant to uh, contemporary discussions that we're having about uh, transitional justice. And, uh, you know, we haven't seen any concrete versions of this yet, but perhaps in the works in the future, we may see some sort of uh, investigations into past crimes. Uh, perhaps even prosecutions, although a lot of people are saying that that's not very likely. Uh, But it's a possibility of one form that transitional justice could take. Uh, And one thing that I I think that your reporting and your researching here really underscores is how difficult that would be, uh, considering all the conflicting reports uh, and considering just how difficult it is to pin down exactly what happened uh, in an incident that's, you know, more than half a century away. Yeah, yeah, it's it's hard to say because uh, from if you just if you just I looked at about seven uh, accounts directly from the students and a lot of them like after they like the guy who led the rebellion or the protest he was taken away so he really didn't know what happened afterwards but all of them mentioned this one thing practice where these students were kind of put into sacks and thrown into the ocean Mm. like that was kind of like common like thing that appeared in all of the accounts but none of them really witnessed it or or saw it but they were they were all afraid that that would happen to them so that's kind of implying that it might have happened but not Mm -hmm. really and there's nothing that would stand up in trial yeah 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 and then there are and then all the conflicting reports about how much violence actually happened during and after the protests very difficult to pin down. Yeah, so it's 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 hard to pin down, mm-hmm. and it's um, and even maybe you were there, uh, maybe you were because many of these were part of the army, so and remained in the army for a long time, so maybe they didn't want right. to talk about it. There's a lot of factors going on exactly. that might, yeah, just lead to not being able to piece together what exactly happened, but. Makes except, it complex. Except for the fact that those seven people were executed. That was mm-hmm. that was official. Mm-hmm. So. And uh, another angle to all of this that probably goes against uh, a lot of our expectations uh, of what white terror meant uh, in Taiwan during that period is that uh, the, the students, at least, that were being swept up in this, uh, they were not Taiwanese. I mean, th- these were people from the mainland that were, uh, you know, the subjects of this particular form of persecution. 
Yeah, that was pretty much nationalist soldiers. Just um, and all the victims of this were actually people from China and、mm-hmm. not people from Taiwan, and they were kind of being framed as being communists.、Uh, so it was kind of like another way to control the populace, like from a different angle and、mm. from from the other side.、Mm-hmm. So you kind of. Um, accused Taiwanese of rebelling or against the nationalist government, and then you can, when you want to deal with the people from China, you can accuse them of being communists. So, is this an incident that's still brought up、uh, regularly in terms of you know we have、uh, the two two eight incident, we have、uh, the Gaoxiong incident、uh, in the nineteen seventies. You know, the, 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 there are certain incidents that play very strongly in、uh, the. Contemporary historical imagination is it, does this fit into that category?、Uh, I think it does. I mean, it doesn't receive as much attention, but there are still、um, memorials and things、um, and events every year for what happened, like、uh, at the site on Penghu, and there's a、um, there's a monument there, and so it's still remembered and it's still considered、um, important.、Mm. Event because it, it kind of presents the other side. All right, and、uh, we move now to the third week of July,、uh, and an event that happened between July sixteenth and July nineteenth. Of 1984, so some pretty recent history、uh, for your column.、Uh, this history concerns the journey of Jerry Tai,、uh, who managed to make it across the entire Pacific Ocean in a one-engine plane. Apparently, he did that faster than anybody else up to that point.、Uh, for anybody who knows anything about aviation, making it such a long distance in a one-engine plane is apparently、uh, quite a challenge. Uh, and he did it, and his endpoint was Taipei. Yeah, yeah. So this one is about、um, Jerry Tai. He's、um, he's had been living in San Francisco for a while. At that point,、um, it's not clear if he was from China or Taiwan, but he's、uh, listed as Chinese American. It's all a little.、Uh... The, the terminology is a little mixed together at that point. A little in, impolite, to be too precise. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so he decided to, he was kind of an adventurer. He was a boxer. He had a diving license. He kind of sailed to the Caribbean on his own, and、uh, yeah, he describes himself as an adventurer. And he was he kept looking at ways to kind of push boundaries. So he decided to fly this plane that was、um, sponsored by these Chinese Americans to call the. Spirit of overseas Chinese,、mm-hmm. like in the vein of the spirit of St. Louis, and、um, so he decided to fly from San Francisco to、um, Taipei in this single-engine, small, kind of not very well-equipped plane,、mm-hmm. and yeah, and he did it. <laughs> he ran through a lot of trouble, like his radio malfunction, his navigation equipment malfunction. It's an interesting he, character because it feels like he's making it hard for the sake of making it hard. Kind of, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like he was talking about his equipment in case he crashed, and he just had like a raft made out of ping pong balls and 
a knife strapped to his thigh to fend off sharks.、Mm. So this was a true adventurer here. <laughs> All right, and so he did、uh, run into some troubles、uh, as he was crossing the Pacific, and it almost looks like he wasn't going to make it, but then he did. It's it's、uh, a, a great、uh, this this could be a novel. Yeah, yeah, it could because、uh, yeah, and then after all that happened, he crash landed on、um, Saipan, and、mm-hmm. um, yeah, the propeller was broken, his、uh, landing gear was blown out, and. So he almost wasn't going to make it, but he was stranded、mm-hmm. there for three months. But then the people of all、Taiwan. the way across Pacific, and、yeah. then he crash landed on、almost、Saipan. Almost there, and then.、Um, but the people from Taiwan were like really eager to help because they kind of、mm. saw this thing as a source of like national pride in a time、mm. where Taiwan's na- international standing wasn't that great. Right. So and、yeah. that, it was new at that time. Yeah, it, it was still you know the. The U.S. had、uh, rescinded its recognition less than a decade earlier,、mm-hmm. and so this this still must have stung. Yeah, yeah. So it was kind of like a big thing for them. So these、uh, airline companies just jumped in. They sent people there, and the bank donated money, and、mm-hmm. yeah. So and then the parts came from San Francisco, and then everybody just got his plane back together, and then he made the last eleven-hour journey. And then finally landed in Taipei on July nineteenth, nineteen eighty four, to a huge、um, procession. There was like a brass band, and people were welcoming him, and he was like really like a kind of hero.、Mm. And so this is kind of interesting. I think that this sort of gets at we we see so many examples now of、uh, Taiwan really going out of its way to、uh, increase its international standing, get its name out there, any source of Taiwan pride. You'll see it on the front of every newspaper in the country.、Um, would this be one of the earliest examples、uh, of that, perhaps, or, or or does that tradition go back even farther?、Uh, I think that tradition goes back even further, like、uh, with the Olympics and、uh, mm-hmm. like a lot of it was like international sporting events、mm-hmm. with like you know like Yang Chuanguang and like、uh, other people like that. But this was a, definitely a continuation of that, and definitely. Um, pretty significant in a time where, you know, people weren't feeling that great about themselves and or the country itself. So yeah, it was definitely part of、uh, this kind of light of Taiwan thing. Where,、mm. um, yes, it was just a source of pride, and the president met with Jerry Tsai, and、mm. so it was that big. Yeah, yeah. So Jiang Jingguo, yeah, Jiang Jingguo met with him,、mm-hmm. and he. Ended up donating the plane to Taiwan, and you can still see it. Yep, you can still see it. It's in what、uh, what museum? It was in the Zhongzheng Aviation Museum, but that's under renovation now. So it is on a naval base in Taoyuan. So, so you can still see it if you sneak into a naval base. Yes, which we are not recommending. <laughs> Well, we have made our way all the way to the fourth week of July,、uh, and this brings us to an incident that occurred in the fourth week of July, 1914. So、uh, we're swinging way back to the beginning of the 20th century,、uh, during a period where、uh, obviously Japan is colonizing Taiwan,、uh, and at this point. I, apparently, I didn't know enough about this period in time because at this point, I would have assumed that it was. Uh, a relatively peaceful, a relatively quiet period in 
Taiwan's history, just, you know, Japan consolidating its colonial rule, uh, building up industry, building up various infrastructure. Uh, but the incident that you are detailing uh, is, in fact, quite violent. Yeah, yeah, it is. What was interesting was, like, from last month when I looked at um, the whole battle that the Taiwanese people organized to resist the Japanese when they mm-hmm. came... Um, yeah, that was kind of a surprise. Like Taiwan just didn't go down just like that. And in fact, it took much longer because uh, after they t- conquered Tainan and kind of pacified, there were still like Han, Han Chinese rebellions going on. And mm. They had to deal with all of that. Right. And then, of course, last month uh, we were, we kind of detailed some of the resistance that occurred, you know, directly after the arrival of the Japanese, and we talked about how. Uh, you know, it didn't take long to put that direct, immediate resistance down. But right, you're, you're, you're saying here there were sporadic uprisings that lasted for a decade afterwards. Mm-hmm. And then, um, so you're looking at up to 1915. That was finally when the Japanese felt they had. Uh, it took them two decades to kind of establish solid control over the whole country because uh, before. There was Han Chinese, and then once they took care of that, they still had the entire Aboriginal areas to control, which those weren't even under the control of the Qing Dynasty mm. even before the Japanese. So, um, this would be the, the the first time where some external authority had been imposed on those regions. Yeah, yeah. And at first, when they were still dealing with all the Han Chinese rebellions, they kind of just blocked off the Aboriginals with like. They called them guard lines. So it was mm. um, stations with like uh, guards and barbed wire, sometimes landmines and all that kind of stuff. And but later, these became they started to use these lines as a way to like encircle the Aboriginals and kind of cut off their resources and limit their land. And they kept mm. pushing forward. But after 1910, the governor. Uh, Sakuma Samada, he decided to get aggressive. Even more aggressive. Yeah, he was Mm -hmm. like, we're going to, this just this encircling and kind of enticing them to give up their guns and uh, either by intimidation or like for coercion or or mm -hmm. like for resources Mm -hmm. or whatever, this is not working. Mm -hmm. And so we're just going to. Um, take the fight to take them. Take the fight. So mm-hmm. he started a bunch of campaigns starting in 1910. He had a five-year plan. And by 1915, he wanted to kind of control all the aboriginals. Mm-hmm. So he started. And then this one I write about, uh, which took place between May and August 1914, is the biggest one. And it could possibly be the one of the biggest... Um, um, Japanese kind of expeditions in Taiwan mm-hmm. because uh, the later the Wuxia, the more famous uh, Wuxia incident, that required about 2,000 Japanese troops to put down. To put down. But this mm-hmm. one, they had uh, a combined force of about 10,000 mm-hmm. soldiers, police, uh, whatever, other... Um, people were carrying supplies and that kind of stuff. So, yeah, and then they just, their target was the Truku tribe, mm-hmm. which uh, had been causing them trouble since 1896 and mm-hmm. were considered one of the fiercest Aboriginal tribes. And so, they, they attacked with 10,000 troops? Yeah, they attacked mm-hmm. these villages and 
the Truku tribes, the different villages had a combined force of probably around 3,000 men. And mm-hmm. they, the Japanese thought, decided that it took this many, it, it would take this many people to take them down. And, mm. and they did. And so they just went into the mountains. There was a lot of fighting going on. But by like late July, it had mostly subsided because the, the Japanese had superior manpower, mm-hmm. equipment, and everything. And their main goal was just to get these tribes to give up their guns and mm-hmm. surrender. So a lot of them did. And the battle ended in August. And it's considered that after that, um, the Japanese pretty much had control over all of the Aboriginal areas in Taiwan. All right, and uh, we are going to round things out on your final article for July. You actually just published this yesterday, uh, July 31st. This one's just hanging on July by a thread. It's sort of an August story. Uh, but we're going to call it July anyway, just uh, for the sake of continuity. Uh, and this one brings us back to August 4th, 1960. We've got a mid-century one here, uh, and we will d- be discussing uh, the life and times of an author by the name of Zhong Li He. Yeah, yeah. So he died on August 4th, 1960, but he was born in 1916 during the Japanese era, so... This is kind of like a continuation, maybe like a, it kind of corresponds with what I wrote last week, uh, last month mm-hmm. about uh, Wu Zhuoliu, who was a Taiwanese author during the Japanese era. And he felt discriminated by the Japanese in Taiwan. So he fled to China and then he kind of felt that Taiwanese weren't that welcome there either. They were seen as like Japanese spies. So he came up with this term, the orphans of Asia, to decide to describe the Taiwanese people. And uh, Zhong Li He has a similar story, but he his is much more dramatic. He went for different reasons. So he was born to a wealthy family, and then he was working on his father's farm, and he fell in love with a farm worker. And they were forbid to marry because they had the same last name, which mm. was a big taboo back then, especially uh, among the Hakka people. Mm. So, and that must be that must have been kind of challenging because I mean, there's a lot of Ma's, there's a lot of Chuns, there's a lot of Wangs in Taiwan. That's 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 a lot of uh, cute, significant others that you're cutting yourself off from. Exactly. So. Yeah, but and back then it was just kind of like, you, you just you, you follow tradition. But this mm-hmm. guy wasn't willing to. He's like, mm-hmm. all right, like, so he kind of just cut ties with his family, and he he went to China first to kind of find uh, get some technical training and find work there, and then he came back uh, a year later in 1940, and um, yeah, and took his lover, and they went on a boat and went to China to start their new life together and mm. th- despite the opposition of both families. Mm. And uh, so you detail that he had kind of idealized uh, to a certain extent what uh, quote-unquote the homeland would be like for him. I mean, he saw this as uh, the source of his lineage, the source of a lot of his culture, and uh, he, you know, he was expecting it to be uh, a great experience to go there and experience it directly. Uh, but uh, much as we uh, heard from uh, that historical figure from last month, uh, what he discovered is a, a similar form of uh, discrimination 
uh, to what he was experiencing in Taiwan. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think first he got there, he was kind of disappointed with how China was because, it, I mean, it was overrun by the Japanese. So mm-hmm. um, a lot of Chinese people were, in, were living in poverty. They kind of weren't always the nicest people because of much because of their living conditions. And um, so he kind of wrote about his disappointment with his uh, and kind of started separating himself from the Chinese people. But what really the final blow was when the Japanese lost the war and all the Taiwanese in Beijing, there were quite a few Taiwanese in Beijing and a lot of them were there working for the Japanese. But when the Japanese lost the war, they started celebrating and they were kind of like, yeah, we both, we got rid of the enemy and our, our conqueror and like our colonial masters. And, but they realized that the Chinese people didn't fully trust them because they were Japanese citizens. A lot of them were working for Japanese. And so he ended up, he wrote um, this story called The Sorrow of the White Sweet Potato. Mm. And he details how um, he feels like the ta- Chinese government or the Chinese didn't really care about the Taiwanese and uh, he just felt discriminated and he he wrote about how um, you if you were Taiwanese you would try to hide it back then because um, otherwise you'd be seen as like a traitor uh, like a Han Chinese traitor who who was like working for the Japanese so you even had to conceal your identity and he was uh, really disappointed by that and so he had no choice but to return to Taiwan and so this story does very much mirror the one that we discussed last month that you mentioned just a second ago. Uh, what would you say would be the contrast between these two? I mean, what what, what attracted you to uh, the Mr. Zhongli He? What, what do you feel like you got away from this one that uh, you didn't get away from last month? Well, this one, um, I think it's a lot of it is... The character of this guy was kind of interesting, how he would defy tradition. And mm-hmm. uh, and he wrote a lot about that. Like, um, he would just write his mind. And, um, like, he wrote a couple stories about people being forced into marriage and deciding whether to seek their own happiness or um, to sacrifice their lives in for tradition. And uh, so he wrote a lot about that, and you could see the his ideals. And it was also interesting that um, even though he was uh, educated in Japanese, he insisted on writing in Chinese mm-hmm. throughout his whole career. Even he didn't really have that much Chinese education, mm-hmm. and also his kind of fascination with China, like fascination with China as like the old country where his grandfather's grandfather came from. Mm. And he always had this like fascination, and then it's it's his character. Like he's growing up in part of Taiwan, which is part of Japan, but he insisted on learning Chinese, writing in Chinese, identifying um, with China, and then and also rebelling against, but then also rebelling against the traditional values and all kind of. So he just wanted to find his own freedom and be his own person. Mm. And so that, that that kind of drew me to him and um, and his life.
you know, I think if, if, if I may identify a theme for today, uh, I think it might be just that there's plenty of periods in Taiwan's history that, uh, you know, in hindsight, we consider them nothing going on, when in fact, there's a lot going on. And uh, it uh, overlooking that, I think, also kind of overlooks uh, certain portions of Taiwan's population, their historical memory, because, of course, you know, getting back to uh, the transitional justice thing, uh, there's plenty of uh, aboriginal leaders that are saying, you know, wh- why are we ending uh, transitional justice at 1945? There's plenty of bad stuff that happened before then. Uh, and, you know, if, if, if we overlook that, you know, uh, we're, we're, we're overlooking some important historical memories for uh, many in Taiwan. That's kind of interesting because uh, the transitional justice, they're kind of targeting what happened after the war and like after the KMT rule and all that kind of stuff that happened. But um, yeah, people suffered under the Japanese too. And uh, you don't really look that much at that, I kind of noticed. Or kind of look at like all the things that happened, like during like 50 years of rule like the first 20 were pretty turbulent mm. and um yeah i just think we need to pay attention to that as well and look at what happened and just know that taiwan didn't go down without a fight mm. and it's interesting i mean even just kind of uh tiptoeing into this conversation just a little bit i mean i i kind of feel like it we're, we're, we're treading on controversial ground it, it shouldn't be because we're just saying you know these are things that happened and you know they should be remembered and recorded uh but do, do you do you feel that pressure when you write this column just the idea that everything you write is going to be looked upon through a contemporary lens and it's either going for or going against some narrative that's important in some political controversy uh, do, do, do you feel that pressure uh, as, as you write this stuff? Um, I guess more or less. I, I don't really feel pressured by it, but I know it's there. And mm-hmm. I know people are going to say things. Um, I mean, just uh, the topic of Taiwan history in general can be controversial because people will be like, oh, that's like furthering so-and-so's political agenda. But for me, it's not. It's, it's just history. And that's why I try to look at primary sources and um, I try to just present the facts. Like I don't try to put a agenda or slant into it, but you know how it is. And no matter how you write it, mm-hmm. it's going to be controversial because uh, just the whole controversy, how politics and history and identity here is controversial. Like everything you write about it, it's going to be so you just try to present it as uh, truthfully and accurately as possible and just try not to put too much of your own opinions into it and uh, I think the biggest thing is just going after primary sources I can be Mm -hmm. like okay this person was there he said that Mm -hmm. and that kind of gives you more credibility than over uh, listening to a politician or a historian um, talk about um, their opinions on mm-hmm. something. So just try to keep it as simple as possible, too. But the controversy is going to be there. Yeah. yeah, just maybe swig a beer, take a Valium before you read that comment section. That's, yeah, yeah. That's all yeah. you need. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, well, we have been discussing historical events from the month of July as recorded in the Taipei Times 
ongoing column, Taiwan in Time. Uh, I am sitting across right now from its author, Han Chung. Uh, Han, thanks for uh, talking to us again. Uh, thanks for having me here again. Thanks again for listening to another podcast edition of Taiwan Talk. We will be speaking to Han Chung again in just a few weeks next month. Uh, and if you want to find the articles that we've been discussing here today, uh, you can just mosey on over to the ICRT blog where I've made a little blog post uh, about today's show. Uh, and it has links to all the articles uh, that we discussed right here. While you're over there, we'd love to hear your thoughts on the show. You can leave your comments in the comments section. Or heck, you know, you can just uh, email me directly. Uh, my email is keith at icrt.com.tw. would always love to hear what you have to say. That is it for Taiwan Talk today. So for ICRT, I'm Keith Manconi. See you next time.